Hi, and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church who now meet each week in Hollywood Adventist on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Van Ness in Los Angeles. In-person church life, as with the rest of life, is going to take a while to find its shape again post-Covid and slowly and surely is going to be our mantra for a while. All these podcasts are taken for the time being from our Sunday services, hence the not always perfect audio quality and background noises. You can live stream them or watch the videos later on bread.church if that's more your thing. How to Return is the theme of the current series. We hope it serves you well. If we haven't met before, my name is Hannah. I'm married to Ed, uh, and we lead this thing together. Um, it's a reasonably, you know, conventional church thing. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's what we believe in. Um, you know, general, orthodox beliefs about those things. Um, but there are some things that we do a little bit differently here um, that we talk about from time to time. One of those things is um, that we really, really don't like religious jargon. And um, it's not just because it makes us sound weird. It, you know, there is that in there as well. But really, because in terms of the sociolinguistics of how we as humans work, in terms of how we mark ourselves and identify ourselves as inside or outside something, jargon is how that works. And we don't really think that church is supposed to work like that. So we flee as much as we possibly can from the use of any language that wouldn't be immediately accessible to somebody walking in through the doors of a church for the first time, um, you know, who wouldn't necessarily know what we mean by cleansing blood or atoning sacrifice or any of the other really strange things that we tend to talk about. Um, but this is a new series on the kingdom, and I'm aware that that word, even though it is a, you know, a, a straightforward word from the English language, um, has something of um, complexity in its connotations in terms of the Christian doctrine that we adhere to. So even though that really the theology of the kingdom of God is something that we're talking about every single week um, in the stuff that we teach, we wanted in this moment to do something a little bit more systematic and comprehensive and deliberate in terms of a teaching on it. It is, to be very honest, quite a heady conversation but it has unbelievably far-reaching practical implications for us in terms of why some people are healed and some people are not, in terms of what we're actually doing when we pray, in terms of also what it is that we can actually believe in when we look to God and believe in his goodness when it comes to his plans and his purposes for us. And I still remember vividly the day, the details of the day, um, what I had for lunch even, when I was first taught this stuff and I first got my head around the complexity of the things of the kingdom of God. And I hope, we really hope that this series um, is useful to you practically, if not just in terms of your theological astuteness. So Ed started the series last week on... Um, he did a sort of swift overview of the Old Testament understanding of what the kingdom of God was to the Old Testament people, which I'm going to recap in a second. But this week, um, what I am looking about is what Jesus said, what Jesus did when he said he was inaugurating the kingdom, when he was bringing that about. 
So, quickly then, the story of Israel for our purposes begins when um, the people of God are under bondage under the king of a kingdom of Egypt. So until their kingdom, sorry, their king of their kingdom, God reaches in and sets them free from the rulership of that kingdom. The same thing happens when they invade Canaan. Two kingdoms clash and God's people win. As Israel grows in understanding of what it is to be God's people and live in the ways of God's kingdom, they thrive over land and sea and foreign nations, over history. This was the picture that Ed painted last week of what flourishing and abundance and creative endeavor and harmony looks like in the kingdom of God, under the rule of King Solomon, but of course really under the rule of God. But as I'm sure you can imagine, what with your human propensity to mess things up, as I can with my human propensity to mess things up, the kings of Israel were much the same and it could not be sustained. The kings from David to Solomon and then onwards got progressively worse. And what followed was another clash with another king of another kingdom, but this time God's people didn't win. They were enslaved once more by the Babylonian kingdom this time. And then what happened as he followed this through the rest of the Old Testament was a, um, a new promise being made in the age of the prophets. And this is what's very important for us to pick up this morning. It was the promise of a kingdom that would eclipse everything that had gone before. So it wasn't just like another one that they'd already known. This is a whole new thing. Where God would break into human history, but this time, rather than a momentary victory over a specific individual kingdom, this would be a comprehensive establishment of his kingly rule. And prophet after prophet spoke of the dramatic things that would happen in this time. It would be a descendant of David who would come as their savior, would shepherd them out of the wilderness, would feed them, the blind would see, the lame would walk. But more than this, this new kingdom would crush all other kingdoms. The glory of this king would outshine the sun. God's anointing would rest so heavily on this savior that all nations would bow at his feet. A whole new era of peace would settle on God's people, and that would be it. The end of the world as they'd known it, and the beginning of a new one where God alone reigns, and it was expected at any moment. But then, the waiting had been going on a long time, hundreds and hundreds of years, in fact, and the Jewish people returned to their land um, out of the exile and the enslavement under Babylonians, back to their land, but they were ruled relentlessly by one foreign power after another. And I think it's possible, perhaps, in this moment in time, for us to imagine what happened for them then in terms of imposters. They were rife, and not much of this is actually included in our Bible, but there's a whole genre of the intertestamental um, of literature um, sort of in this period that shows quite how outlandish and heavily political um, the claims were about what this Messiah was going to do and how he was going to do it. We don't really like waiting, do we? But anyway, all of this, that little recap, that little explanation, is the setting into which Jesus was born. And we're going to look at that in Mark's gospel today. Except, Mark, you will notice doesn't bother with any of the Jesus birth and sort of background stuff, none of his childhood. Mark, who, by the way, was very likely Barnabas' cousin and a, and a contemporary of Apostle Peter, 
Mark wrote his gospel entirely from the perspective of this new kingdom that Jesus was bringing and its arrival on this day. And so he goes straight for his moment. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, says, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John is a prophet in, a long, in this long line of Old Testament prophets uh, with a big following, um, as we can see, because people were very keen to hear this message about the new Messiah that they've been waiting for. So verse 5, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothes made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn apart and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. A pretty large sign, witnessed by a pretty large crowd. Just as John had been saying, Jesus is the one we have been waiting for. And the sky being torn open, obviously that's quite a big sign, but the spirit descending like a dove, it might be symbolism that's probably a bit lost on us because we're so familiar with it, but what that really was referring to was the way that the spirit was described in Genesis with, with fluttering over the waters. It's drawing their mind back to that to show that this is, this, this is that God, the creator God, the beginning of everything is now here. And obviously hearing an audible voice naming his son is a pretty big sign as well. So there we are unequivocal opening from Mark, zero doubt, right to it, Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. And then carrying on a little bit more, at once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. Matthew paraphrases that three times in his gospel, saying the kingdom of God is at hand. The time has come, the kingdom of God is near, or at hand, right here. The one that we've been waiting for has come. Repent, which is less about saying sorry and more about the things that you follow, turning around to follow these things. Believe the good news, the good news that this Messiah will overthrow this age. The one that we've been waiting for who's going to wage this ultimate war has come. He is here. But this time, again, the battle is not with a specific nation or specific kingdom. This time, the battle is the cosmic one between the rule of God and the power of evil. So it's, you can see it's quite significant uh, that he goes out in verse 12 and goes at once, it says, to confront Satan in the wilderness. But it's also very significant about how he goes on from here to demonstrate this rule all the way through the Gospels, to demonstrate his status, his kingship, his authority as he travels from town to town. So how does he do this? He does this by having authority over things that only God can do, over sin, yes, over sickness, over death, 
even over the wind and the sea. So the symbolism of him having authority over the sea is also very important, maybe not to us, but to them, the sea um, symbolizes chaos. It symbolizes all unruly, earthly chaos. So Jesus coming in and commanding the storm over the sea to stop is a hugely powerful statement about him being the one who is bringing in this kingdom. And he demonstrates it as he takes um, this confrontation to the edges of Israel and into Gentile land, and everywhere he goes, waging this war, this ultimate war to bring the new kingdom. And even when people don't get it, demons do. Right from the start, in fact, just a few verses after this, as Jesus begins his ministry, um, he, he confronts a demon, and this carries on all the way through. I think we've got the verse up there. Maybe we don't. Verse 24. Um, he, he meets a demon. The demon asks him who he is. He tells him who he is, and the demon has to leave. That's, that's how this goes all the way through Jesus' ministry because when Jesus confronts evil, Jesus brings victory. Demons are a fun subject, aren't they? Yeah? Um, Bennett and I had a conversation this week where we were comparing notes from the experiences that we had had in our childhoods of deliverances. Um, pastor's kids, most up, messed up people you're ever going to meet. Um, neither of us coincidentally remember anything about these experiences being um, scary or damaging. I would say actually quite the opposite. These experiences were in the midst of some other stuff that caused a lot of more questions in my life. These experiences were sort of a demonstration of power and the reality of God that I could not, no matter what else I was denying, deny. Um, <clears throat> in terms of our Western mindset, where we are raised, and I know many of us here are raised in, within the ideology, ideology of a culture that we live in, but within a family that perhaps believes quite different things. Um, but the Western pervasive mindset pummels us with this belief that other things are far, far more true than the reality of an evil realm outside of the shelves of Target and Home Depot for a couple of months of the year. We sort of see evil as like this sort of comical, ghostly, you know, zombie type thing that is only really relevant to Halloween. Um, but for I know a number of us, if we're raised in different families, this was definitely true of Ben. Ben's dad is Indonesian. I don't want to tell your story for you, but just seeing as I'm on the subject, you know, interrupt me if I get any of this wrong. Ben's, Ben's dad is Indonesian. His uh, dad's dad was a witch doctor. And before uh, Ben's dad met Jesus, obviously, he's just living in a culture and a world where the reality of evil and the reality of goodness are things that we just talk about. My mum was raised in East Africa, in Rwanda and Kenya. Absolutely same true thing, same is true of there. My parents uh, worked and lived together in Taiwan as China missionaries for years and years. And, this was, you know, uh, the reality, obviously, African and Asian and all cultures are totally different, but what they do tend to have that we do not have is a sense of the reality of these forces. Um, and so, we are shaped, I think is the point I'm trying to get across. We are shaped, and we are continually shaped by a mindset that either does or does not let us know that the forces are, of darkness are real. What was very, very powerful in Ben's life, I know, and in my life, was also that we knew that we, that we were talking about a God who came to destroy those. So it wasn't scary. And as I said, I would say that 
in the midst of some other massive questions that I had about the truth and import of Jesus and the whole Jesus thing, those experiences stood out to me as something undeniable that I had witnessed. But deliverance, though. Let's talk about deliverance. I got um, an email from my cousin Simon, who supports uh, groups of Christians in Burundi. Burundi is the world's poorest nation in East Africa, if you don't know it. And he sends out this uh, email blast to actually a massive um, number of people uh, most weeks, where his goal is to raise money for Burundian Christians, but also to raise the faith of the mainly Western audience reading, reading these things. So just this week, the team went out and a completely certified blind woman had her sight restored fully. But they also told this story of a girl on a stretcher who had been tied down by her parents because she was so demonically oppressed that she couldn't stop hurting herself and other people. Um, so I just want to make a quick note there that what we're not talking about here is mental health. This is not a conversation about psychopathology. It's a really, really important conversation, but this is something else. This is about the power of darkness taking hold of people's lives. The, this group of Christians said that they prayed for her all night. They were so sure this was demonic oppression, they prayed for her all night, which I found quite committing because I love this stuff and I passionately believe in this stuff and I love being involved in it, but I have never prayed for somebody all night. Um, and then at dawn, they said, it finally happened. She was dramatically released and apparently her physical appearance was, in, was changed entirely and she got up and walked out and was completely different. We have seen the undeniable change in people's lives when they're released from this stuff. I've seen it on faces. I've seen it in bodies, in posture. This is why we pray for it. Silver and gold we may or may not have. But what we do have in the name of Jesus Christ is freedom from demonic oppression. I do know, from doing this long enough here, that this conversation is scary and unappealing and um, uncomfortable. And I know that people who are worried about this stuff are very often people who are also quite worried about being open to the power of Holy Spirit in any way when we talk about doing this at the front here and we do it at the end of every service. And we do understand why that is. We really, really do. Sometimes it's because we have seen this used coercively and manipulatively I think quite often it's just because we don't know what we're opening ourselves to. How can we say and uh, welcome the presence of the Holy Spirit if we don't know that he's good? It's very, very understandable. I would say if, you, if, you're, if you're identifying with what I'm saying and you like some things about coming to this church but aren't particularly down with the stuff at the front, a simple prayer about just being open to the degree that you're able. Just start where you are. We wouldn't claim for a second that the Spirit isn't powerful and that he's not going to do whatever he wants to do because he is. But he does want to show a lot of us here today, I believe, that we have nothing to fear. His ways are always good. They are always towards making you more you, leading you towards freedom and things that oppress, leading towards healing and goodness and kindness, 
I do wonder how many of you might be scared that you know you come up and open yourself and actually what he's going to do is start exposing a load of sin. It's not what happens. It's about receiving the unbelievable power of the healing words of God about who you are and how much he loves you. It's very, very good. I highly recommend it. And just to reiterate what Ed said, he's going to be teaching more on this stuff specifically on Wednesday night. And so if this is even a tiny bit intriguing to you, do come along. Promise you won't be forced to do anything you don't want to do. Promise, promise. Anyway, so Jesus' ministry has begun. The new kingdom has been announced by his displays of power and authority over sickness, evil, and death. And that was crystal clear. But also it was not. I think it is very, very easy for us to sit here with our perception on what happened um, and think things like, the disciples were so stupid not getting it, and those awful, terrible, hypocritical Jewish leaders refusing to see what was perfectly clear, that Jesus was the one they'd been waiting for. It actually wasn't perfectly clear at all. Because if you see, if you look back through the Gospels, while loads of the Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus' life and teaching and ministry, loads of it wasn't. Because David's son didn't come and overthrow Caesar and rule. And also, they're still waiting for all of the nations to be judged. There's lots of things, lots of things that were believed were going to happen in this moment that did not happen when Jesus arrived. And in fact, the obscurity of it seems actually quite intended on Jesus' part, which I think confuses a lot of us. He specifically said he wasn't sharing the secrets of the kingdom with everybody. And even when he was teaching directly and clearly on the kingdom, there was also something massively indeterminate about the timeline of it. So in our passage in Mark 1, he says that the kingdom has come near. But in other um, places, in all three synoptic gospels, he says it will come. He taught about the coming of the kingdom in a future tense um, with things like that. Um, he'd return on the clouds to gather his people um, and that it would be uh, so dramatic. It would be visible from the east to the west, so all over the world at the same time. And Paul's letters and a lot of the stuff that we know from Revelations backs this up. There was an expectation of something future and something final coming at the end of the world. He also says it's going to be delayed. He spoke in Matthew of a period of time that would be required after this, after the stuff that he was doing, uh, for um, nations to rise up against each other and also for the word about this to spread through the whole of the world. He also said it was going to happen really soon imminently at hand, upon you, near. Again, in all three synoptic gospels, we have a record of him saying that it was going to happen in their generation. He said some of you will be alive when these things happen. He also said it's already here. Any sense of it happening in the future is balanced entirely by an emphasis that Old Testament prophecy had been fulfilled in him. Done, completed. Reference to that littered all the way through all of the gospels. It's already here, it's coming in the future, it hasn't happened yet, and, but it's going to happen soon, and something final is yet far off. And I will just stop and point out that this is not straightforward stuff. We are talking about God outside time, stepping into time, inaugurating, bringing forth a future kingdom, 
which is already present while still living in an age that hasn't ended. It's almost Christopher Nolan worthy. <clears throat> and yet, getting our heads around this stuff is about the most important thing we can do as Christians. We are made to belong in a kingdom when everything is in harmony again, when division is no longer, when slave and free and male and female and gay and straight and binary and non-binary and black and white and every color under the sun live in harmony, in shalom, where the sense of self and other is rewritten completely, where sickness is no longer, where accidents can't happen, regret doesn't exist, where the earth no longer groans under the pain of this age, where the climate works perfectly, where families thrive and there's space and there's enough for every living thing. This idea is that we're in the interim. We're stuck in the middle. And really, it's the only understanding that can satisfy some of the deeply painful questions that we ever have over prayer. This actually changes everything with prayer. We're not praying to a God who would like to help but just can't, or you know, doesn't have enough authority, or hasn't heard us pray hard enough, or doesn't think we've got enough faith. We're praying to a God who reigns in a future age that has already begun, while we're still living in a present age that has not ended. This is the only thing that explains why sometimes God heals and sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes people die. All of us die. But we will pray for healing and we will always pray for healing because God heals. We can't not, can we? And again, because we've seen it. Ed has prayed for somebody who had terminal cancer, who in that moment, the very next day, scans verified, was healed of all signs of cancer. I prayed for someone who had chronic pain throughout her body, and all pain left her, gone, finished. And Simon's friend last week, certified blind, can now see. And the thing is, this is so hard and so heavy for some of us to hear because we've prayed for people who haven't been healed. We've lost people to cancer, to COVID this year. But let us never fall into the pit of believing that this is what God wanted. He lets things happen for a reason. Jesus rages at sickness and death. He doesn't weep. In John 11, when Lazarus dies, he rages. The, the, the word there is, denotes the grunt of a horse. He knows he's going to go and raise him again. And yet in the presence of the reality of pain and suffering, of being in an age that has not yet ended, knowing that we're made for something else, Jesus rages. And it's how he feels about all instances of this. I think... It's very important and very, very needed for a lot of us 
to believe that God feels this way about the ways we have suffered. Um, when I was 23, um, I often short story my kind of coming back to faith with, it happened at St. Mary's, this church where we met and planted and whatever. The reality, what, what actually happened before that was um, I was led to Jesus by a man who had a, a, a ministry and a following and he felt like God had told him that, um, uh, you know, he was going to be instrumental in my return to faith. And what followed was a very, very toxic, very abusive affair, uh, which for me meant just lying to everyone I knew. I, I, I take all personal responsibility that's on me, but um, it was spiritually and sexually abusive for about a year and a half. And so when I arrived at St. Mary's, which was shortly after that all publicly exploded, um, I didn't really want to go to church again. Uh, I, in the midst of everything that you know, started to process from my childhood, um, and then this whole mess, which really, you know, like scales falling off my eyes, I really had believed a lot of dark and horrible lies um, I unfortunately though couldn't escape something of Jesus that I had met somewhere along the lines in all of that happening and so my, I, I moved in with my sister who was living in London and she was going to St Mary's and I sort of uh, occasionally, not every week by any means would sort of arrive late and sit at the back and um, cry mainly um, and then I started to make some friends, and that was very, very healing, just being in a culture where I was able to just be myself and talk about what was really going on. Uh, and then I started to open myself and come forward. And really, what I did was cry. You know, if, you just, if anyone has, feels embarrassed about coming forward and crying, this is supposed to be the place where you can do this. We say this a lot. You've got to be able to cry in church like you've got to be able to bleed in a hospital. This is where, if we, the, the imagery that's always so helpful, I believe, is that we're like a cup. And if we're full of pain, when the Spirit's poured into us and his love and his goodness and his perfect peace is poured into us, the pain has to come out. And this is totally different to therapy. I did a lot of therapy as well. This is totally different to healing human relationships. This is damaged spirits needing healing. So that's what I did for a very long time. And then I was offered a job by this church, and I didn't have a job, and I did not want to work for a church at all. Um, I did already fancy this man, and he was around there a lot, and so that I will um, uh, didn't not have an impact on my decision. But I met this friend to um, for a coffee because she um, works there part time as well, and, and um, she. I said, like, I don't know what to do. I don't. I don't want this job in any way, but I am being offered it. Um, it just feels wrong. I don't know whether to trust anything or whatever. And she said, Why don't you? lay a fleece. Have you ever heard that language? That's some good Christian jargon for us, isn't it? Let's lay a fleece. And I'm not ready to write a book on this one, but my advice would be don't do that. Just because in my experience of doing these things, God's timing doesn't work like ours, and I don't think he loves this sort of sense of us holding to something. Anyway, let me finish my story before you make any judgment on that. So 
um, she says, why don't you lay a fleece? And I had to give them, this was on a Friday, and I had to give them an answer on the Monday. And so I left, I remember, I walked out of the coffee shop, and I went, I don't know, I'll just, I don't know, God, I'll, I, like, whatever, someone will have to say the word greenhouse to me, all right? And I didn't think about the symbolism of that. That's what popped into my head. I didn't think maybe God's speaking to me about the imagery of a greenhouse. Um, somebody, before Monday, has to just say greenhouse. And if they do, I'll know it's God. And um, I went to church on Sunday. No one had said greenhouse. Hadn't seen greenhouses on telly. No big ads, nothing in my dreams. Um, and went, came forward for church. Lots of people prayed for me. I cried a lot. Nobody said anything to do with the greenhouse. Uh, and that was really annoying. And then Monday came, and I went, fine, I'll just take the job. I've got nothing else to do. And did. Um, and worked there for about a year and a half. And this sort of greenhouse thing sort of faded away to a scribbly entry on a journal. Why doesn't it ever answer me the way I want it? Um, and I didn't love it, to be honest. I loved the church, loved what I received, but I didn't enjoy working there. Didn't, it didn't do, I just needed, you know, that sort of significance and meaning stuff that I think our 20s are full of. Doing admin for a church didn't give me it. And um, anyway, so then I decided I want to leave the church. Not the church, the job. And um, I've successfully wooed him by now. And... Um, we're going to get married, and it's time. And actually, he's got other things. I need to earn some money for one of us, because he, at that point, he was supposed to be opening a, a, a business that was really exciting. And then he got the call, and everything changed again. But I needed to get a job that paid some actual money. But I wanted God to confirm this. I'm in church again on a Sunday night. I've decided I need to give the um, answer about whether or not I'm going to leave on the Monday think I'm going to, but would just really like, just really, really like God to speak in some way, and I go forward for prayer, and do some more crying, a lot of snot, and then uh, go and, and put in my coat on, nobody said anything about, you know, God says what you're sensing is right, or, you know, just the little, just something that would have been right, and then this guy, who is gorgeously socially awkward, and new to the things of the spirit, and just a hilarious, lovely, wonderful man, um, and very posh, sort of sidles over to me and just says, I'm, 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 I just don't know if this is right, I don't know if this is right at all, but I had two pictures of you, and the first one, bearing in mind I haven't thought about greenhouses for a really long time, the first one uh, was you in a greenhouse, and then the second one, you flew out of the greenhouse, and then you were in a field, and God says, it's time for you to leave the greenhouse, now you're going to go be planted in a field, which was quite amazing for me, not really, if I'm being completely honest, because I felt affirmed in what I was doing and the decision I was making. I, you know, I have come to learn that a need for God to um, lead our steps is probably, like maturity comes in just trusting our own intuition and prayerfully making these decisions because he often doesn't do that because we don't live in this future place yet. What really, really, really changed me that day was a belief in God's kindness that, you know, after all was said and done and all of the things that I've been doing here this whole time in church, he'd been in it all. And less about the things, less about the jobs, I really, you know, 
the specifics of these things. I know for loads of us, the painful choices that we feel like we're making, we just desperately want God to speak and lead and do stuff. But what we are about here, what we are doing here, in the greater, bigger sense of all of it, really, is receiving his kindness, is believing again that he is good, that he is one we can follow. And I do think there are people here today with lots of prophetic words uh, affirming the same sense that it's too hard for some of us to say that we want to follow him because we don't know that he's kind. We think that maybe saying yes to that is going to look really uncomfortable and gross. We don't know that all he really wants for you is to make you more how he made you. But um, I'm going to ask the band to come up and play again now. I do, I do think that's what the Spirit's doing this morning. I think there's a sense of a heaviness to it because it's just, it's the thing that changes everything. Whether you are here in desperate pain about this sense of calling, whether you are here uh, under the belief that you could no longer be used for the things of the kingdom because of something you've done or that you're still doing, whether just really you need to know that he cares about the suffering. I'd encourage you now, if you want to stand, just as the band sings this song, to invite the Spirit to the degree that you are able to say, come, Holy Spirit, and let him bring his words of kindness to you. So we'll sing this song now, and then we will end. <laughs>